everyone, I'm Maxine with Prosper Podcast, and today's special guest is Dan Held. Dan is a Bitcoin OG and was a part of the original Bitcoin meetup in Silicon Valley back in 2013. So I'm sure he has a lot of stories to share with us about Bitcoin and how it's grown since then. Dan is also a successful entrepreneur, having sold his companies to Airbnb and Kraken. So I can't wait to talk more about it with him. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Maxine. Um, you know, Dan, like who were you before you were Dan Held? Because there's no information about that. Uh, and I really want to learn more. You know, you were an entrepreneur. That's as much as I could find. You know, I'm not sure if the story is that exciting, but I'll give you the, <laughs> I'll give you the, uh, the old OG part of Dan Held. So I, uh, I'm a Texan. I grew up in Texas and, um, you know, lived a pretty normal Texas lifestyle. I didn't really... I didn't really think, didn't really have grand aspirations. Um, in Texas, what you do is you go to school where all your friends are at, like college. You go to college in Texas, then you graduate and you go get a, a good job. And a good job is oil and gas, banking, uh, uh, legal, um, tech. And back when I graduated, so 2010, was, uh, you know, in Texas, they're not really like super. Um, you know, forward thinking or innovative. There's not like a, not like the co-star where it's like a, a really intense hustle and a, and a strive for innovation. So I didn't really have those aspirations. I was really interested in tech. I'd tinker around with um, torrenting and I kind of like the edgier side of tech, like torrenting and TrueCrypt uh, using VPNs. Um, so I was kind of into that side of things, you know, more of like using encryption for privacy. And um so I was kind of a normal Texas guy. I studied finance in undergrad, um, you know, but I was a little bit more open-minded than most in the gr- friend group I surrounded myself with was as well. So, um, you know, we started to experiment a little bit in terms of pushing the envelope of, of, you know, like torrenting definitely is illegal and kind of pushing the envelope a little bit and starting to question the nature of my reality, which was, I, I would say, more than a lot of Texans were. They, most people just accepted that things were the way that they were. So I was a little bit more, I'm willing to try things and push, push the legality of certain things. Um, I worked at a small investment firm in Dallas and they, you know, they said, Hey, would you like to move to San Francisco? And I was like, sure, let's try it. Let's, let's go for it. Um, and that's where I got involved in that meetup scene, the, the Bitcoin meetup in 2013 with the founders of Kraken, Coinbase, uh, Charlie Lee with Litecoin, uh, Jed McCaleb, uh, Stellar and Ripple. Yeah. Um, so that was that was like the group back then. I, I was still working at a small investment firm. So I'd show up in the meetups with like business casual on and everyone's like, <laughs> what the hell are you doing? Cause everyone else is into tech wearing hoodies and t-shirts. Um, and it was in that sort of experience where, you know, I had heard about Bitcoin before back in 2012. So I'd already had a good fundamental understanding of Bitcoin. I went to the meetup and I'm like, oh man, there's other people like me in Dallas, Texas. There, weren't, there wasn't anyone into Bitcoin in Dallas, Texas in 2012. No, no one, no one is into it back then. So I found my, I found my tribe, my group. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like a lot of people in crypto, they always kind of say that is that like, you know, they question their reality and then they meet people who also question their reality. And all of a sudden they're building like amazing companies with one another. But, you know, like, how did you, I know that you moved to Silicon Valley, but how did you come across that first Bitcoin group? Because I think back then, you know, in 2013, it was still very early stages of Bitcoin. Um, did somebody just invite you and he said, hey, this sounds interesting. Um, and what was your first take on Bitcoin? Yeah, so someone invited me to it as my old roommate and buddy. Um, since then, he's turned to BSV or 
Oh, you still talk? <laughs> no, we don't talk anymore because of that. But um, there's a little bit dis- and I think people don't realize like in the Bitcoin civil war with Bitcoin Cash and BSV, it was brother against brother and, yeah. and daughter, you know, a friend against friend, right? Like it was a pretty brutal struggle. Um, and there's a lot of like, I think kind of remnant, like not PTSD, but definitely remnant. Um, you know, this was kind of a sad thing to go through. Um, so yeah, like I, he invited me out there. He took me to it. I thought that was super cool. When I first heard about it, I heard about it in 2012. And that's when I first started to buy it. Um, technically, I, I found my Mt. Gox account creation date was December 20, 2011. So technically Incredible. a little bit older, but I didn't. I don't think I bought anything. It's so long ago. I don't remember. I think it was 2012 is when I first started to buy coin. Um, and yeah, to me, it made sense at the time. I was studying finance in undergrad during the 2008 financial crisis. I realized my book was wrong. My professors were wrong. Everyone on TV was wrong. And I was trying to seek a new truth that would that would be this like solution to the central banking problem. Not many people went down my journey. More, most people aren't finance folks. Most people don't care enough. Or if they were finance folks, they just accepted the reality of it and went on. Um, so I had that as a fundamental basis. So when the, the kernel of knowledge of Bitcoin came in and was was incepted in my brain, there was a fertile ground for it to, to germinate and, and, and grow. Uh, so the 21 million hard cap, I thought was a genius breakthrough in monetary policy. Um, that to me was always the real excitement here was around this innovative monetary policy that brilliantly took out the option to choose an inflation rate and instead just hard-coded a hard cap, a hard cap of 21 million in. Um, this is innovative because when an inflation rate is inserted into a monetary policy, there is constant debate over what it should it be. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and the problem is that there is no way to calculate what an appropriate rate of inflation should be and then press levers to perfectly eke out that rate of inflation because the economy is incredibly complex. Um, and Hayek covered this in distributed information where you know, when you talk about how a pencil is made, um, you know, the distributed information flows into like, how is, it, how is a pencil made? Well, no one in the whole world, no, there's not one person in the whole world who knows how to make a pencil end to end. There's folks who know how to make the eraser, the wood, the paint, the, it's not lead anymore in there, but it's a graph, I think graphite. Um, and what the market does is it enables all of those participants to work together to build this object, but there's no central controller. There's no central mechanism to control all of these different participants they all work together in harmony to create a pencil. And, and if you extrapolate that to your iPhone, it's the same thing. And a, a pear or apple or sandwich, those all required immensely complicated supply chains and individual market participants. Satoshi took some of this in and understood that there's no way for a central planning com- uh, entity to plan all of the and measure and plan for the economy. So he took out that measurement component and just said, we'll have 21 million and the economy can reorient around this fixed number. Kind of like it was a brilliant breakthrough in regards to like a system or unit of account, kind of like how we have the meter mm-hmm. or a kilogram. This was a very important scientific moment for money. Now we had a precise measurement for money while also reducing the temptation to go print more. It was set at yeah. 0% inflation. I Yeah, I think that like for our viewers and listeners, they would really 
love to understand more because I think what you're saying is that it's like sound money in a system that's hard coded, right? And um, you know, when I was doing research, I saw that you had this really great quote, which is that people come for the speculation, but they stay because of sound money. Can you explain to our audience exactly what sound money means? Sure. So sound money would be money that has no central authority and no central controller. Another example of previous sound money would be gold. Uh, gold is the physical manifestation of the original sound money. There's no central supplier. There's no central control mechanism that governments can have over it. Um, and also it has other properties like it's finite and durable and other, uh, other parameters that it has as money. Uh, Bitcoin shares a lot of these, but actually takes that to another level. First, it's digitally native. So gold can't be native to the internet, can't be native to this digital world that we live in. And then also we don't know, we can't audit the supply of gold and we don't know how much more gold there is. Bitcoin ensures a supply curve uh, that we fully know how many coins are out there now and we know how many there will be in the future. This enables us to precisely understand exactly how many we own relative to the total number. And um, this is a unique advantageous characteristic of Bitcoin over gold as a sound money. So it's that predictable or not centrally controlled supply um, and other parameters like divisibility, transportability, um, fungibility, um, all these sort of things that make a money a money that enable Bitcoin to be a sound money. So a money without state control. That's wonderful. I think that's like a really great way to explain it. And, you know, I think that when people are entering their understanding of Bitcoin and, you know, they purchase their first Bitcoin or whichever cryptocurrency they end up doing, you know, they do kind of have to have that roller coaster of looking at the volatility of the price, which we know that over time has become less and less volatile. But I think for the average person, it seems like these incredible extremes of highs and lows. Um, do you want to kind of give like more of a macro understanding of the cycles of Bitcoin, just so that our audience kind of feels more confident and like has a good expectation of what they should be expecting? Sure. There's, there's a couple of ways to think about it. One, Bitcoin wasn't going to go from zero <laughs> to a trillion dollar market cap <laughs> yeah. in this nice, smooth, easy line. That's not how the world works. The world works with uh, intense volatility. Um, volatility inherently is not a bad thing. It just means that there is like different, like price discovery is happening at a rapid pace. That means that more and more folks are discovering why Bitcoin's valuable. And that's not, it doesn't happen in a linear function. It happens in a, in a mad rush and then a mad, mad pullback. And so that's where we see the price go up and down. What's beautiful about Bitcoin's volatility though, is that that is how Bitcoin became adopted. It, Bitcoin had an inherent viral loop. So for those who are marketing oriented, you've heard about viral loops before. For those who aren't, I'll give you a quick explanation. Viral loops are an example of a referral program. So in an app, there might be a button that says, share this app with your friends and you get $5. That's a referral program. If you share it with your friends and then they share it with their friends, they share it with their friends, that's a viral loop because it continues to propagate through a population. The term actually comes from viral propagation, like viruses. Mm -hmm. um, Bitcoin's viral loop mechanism is the price. As the price goes higher, people talk about it. They become more aware of it. Then you buy it. And then that feeds back into the loop of the price going higher. And that loop, these market cycles are entirely why we're here today. I'm sure Maxine came in during one of these bull runs. 
I got interested right after the 2011 one. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the this is the calling card of Bitcoin where we go. Why did this go up? What what is this thing? And that's where come for the speculation, stay for the sound money comes from because almost all of us came through the speculative uh, price swings. These aren't bad or good things. It's just how a market works. Think about it this way, like Apple and Google and Facebook, their stocks were very volatile starting from a startup (laughs) all the way to where they are now. Um, That volatility though tended to trend upward. Same with Bitcoin. Bitcoin has a tremendous price appreciation. Now, looking at why does this happen? Why does this happen every four years or so? This is tied to the halving schedule. Well, it's hypothesized that it's tied to the halving schedule. It's the best explanation that we have for what's going on. So what happens uh, is that there is 21 million Bitcoin total, and those need to be issued at a certain rate. They're issued per block. So approximately every minute, there's a new block, a new Bitcoin block, and miners mine to receive that block reward. Inside the block reward is our transaction fees and the newly minted Bitcoin called the subsidy. Well, over time, that needs to decrease and, and hit 21 million. It can't just, it's not in a linear function. It's in a, uh, an exponentially decaying function. So every four years, the number of newly minted Bitcoin per block drops in half. That's called a halving. We hypothesize that in a halving, what occurs is that supply drops. So less supply is hitting the market. And if demand stays the same, then the price starts to creep up a little bit. And then we have the viral loop component that kicks in. And so now there's less supply hitting the market because there's less coins being printed. And that means that any increase in demand will have a very high sensitivity to moving the price because there's less supply that's naturally hitting the market on a daily basis. This is the hypothesis behind the four-year cycle. It's played out this way many times, basically the whole time I've been in it. Um, Is it guaranteed? No. I think a lot of folks focus on the quantitative side where they're like, Dan, there's no way that an algorithm or there's no way you could model this and predict that this was going to happen. They're correct. We don't know. We can't predict the future. Otherwise, I'd be a trillionaire and I'd be in my yacht right now. (laughs) But what we do know is we have qualitative information. Like we qualitatively know like, okay, every four years, companies build, get the infrastructure ready. The supply drops. If demand stays the same, price starts to increase. And then we have basic human behavior kick in. So what you're, yeah, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but like what, what you're saying is that there's like the halving cycle and how is that different to, I think what you've dubbed as the super cycle? Yeah, great question. So I uh, heard about the 2011 cycle. Um, I didn't participate in that. I participated in the 2013 cycle, 2017 cycle, and now in term, participated as in hot bot and hodled. Mm-hmm. Um, 2013 actually had two price went from $10 to 260 in March, 2013, back down to hundred. And then it was I remember that one. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a cool year. I mean, I, I didn't really know, you know, I didn't have a, as good of a grasp around Bitcoin as I do now. I think folks are so lucky when they come in today. I mean, I stand on the shoulders of giants. I, I think I'm good at distilling and taking complex narratives and making them simple. But I learned from a whole host of other Bitcoiners who came before me and who wrote articles. And uh, I didn't really consider myself a writer or public speaker until two years ago, uh, to put it in context. So believing in Bitcoin back then was tough. There weren't any podcasts. There was almost no YouTube content. You've got to remember this is 20, 2012, 2013. Um, there were very few mobile apps in this space. There were very few companies. So these, these price swings were more intense because you had a very lonely kind of existence. There wasn't even Twitter wasn't popular to talk about Bitcoin back then. Reddit was the popular place to talk or Bitcoin talk, the forum. 
So being a Bitcoin was kind of a lonely existence and you, you truly had to believe because there wasn't a lot of like technical analysis, uh, hodling cultural values and everything that, that, that kind of kept us all together that, that the last cycle had. Um, so what the super cycle represents, we've got these cycles and if we extrapolate previous bull runs, we would say that we would look at the future price appreciation of Bitcoin and feel confident that Bitcoin should hit between $100,000 and $300,000. That's like the average answer if you asked a bunch of analysts out there. I think that it's a disservice to Bitcoin to just isolate it in its own micro cycle, these little four-year cycles, and not think about the bigger world. We had COVID happen. I mean, this, mm -hmm. this drastically changes the environment versus the previous market cycles. Previous market cycles had just retail traders, and we were in largely a macro bull run. Uh, there wasn't a recession. There wasn't a depression going on. Well, COVID hits, and all of a sudden people go, I should learn about Bitcoin because I don't trust my government now. I don't, and they're printing $25 trillion across the world. What's going to happen to my, my fiat money, my government money? Well, it's probably going to lose its value. And then folks are hunting to where do I store my wealth now? Bitcoin's a great alternative for that. It's a great store of value. So that's where Bitcoin's moment to shine is now the perfect moment. And I've waited eight years to see this. We've had, we have investment banks, hedge funds, corporations like Tesla buy Bitcoin and say that Bitcoin is gold 2.0. This is what I've been seeing for eight years. So it's incredible. It's an incredibly proud moment for all of us as Bitcoiners to get here because this means that we have all of this institutional money that will flow into Bitcoin, which makes this cycle very different as well. So one, we have COVID. Two, we have the institutions. Now, the institutions don't just increase the amount of, amount of money that flows into Bitcoin. They also validate Bitcoin as an asset class for retail traders, which then brings in more retail trading volume. So that's where the super cycle theory comes from. Again, it's a theory. I'm not predicting anything. It's, yeah. it's one of many outcomes, and I don't think it's the probable one, but I think it's possible. I actually wrote about this in 2019 before COVID hit, and I mentioned that a recession, if that timed at the same time during a Bitcoin bull run, then that might be Bitcoin's big moment, the super cycle moment. Yeah. And so then COVID hit and that was a big check mark in my theory of like, oh, wow, well, this is <laughs> this is a very negative moment. And I certainly don't wish for moments like that, but it was a moment where people start to question their government and their money. Yeah. Um, and then with the institutions piling in, I did not expect corporations to put Bitcoin on their balance sheet for a long time. Oh, I was very surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy, right? I, At this you know, stage and like, so it's seemingly so early. Yeah. It, it feels early still. And that, that's where I think it's still very early for Bitcoin and its trajectory to become a world, a world reserve currency. Um, you know, Tesla putting in uh, money into Bitcoin, how many more have been putting money into Bitcoin and they haven't announced it yet? You know, mm -hmm. we've got a wave of earnings calls coming up here and I've got a feeling that we're going to hear a few more, a few more big brand companies. Um, ARK invested in analysis and with all of the current cash and cash equivalent balances at different um, uh, different publicly traded companies in the United States. If they put 10% of that cash balance into Bitcoin, Bitcoin would be at $400,000 of Bitcoin. So Amazing. the super cycle theory isn't that crazy. If we look at the macro backdrop, if we look at the institutions as a new market participant, and finally, it's so easy to buy Bitcoin now. We've got all these apps out there you can buy Bitcoin with. I work at Kraken, definitely recommend <laughs> buying Bitcoin over at Kraken, shameless plug. <laughs> Um, Pete, okay. I got the comms team. I got the comms team in my ear telling me <laughs> for the plug, but I uh, know Kraken's a great place to buy Bitcoin, but we're going to have a Bitcoin ETF eventually. So you yeah. can buy Bitcoin with your brokerage account. You can buy Bitcoin with PayPal. You can buy Bitcoin with Robinhood, you know, a cash app. 
Venmo. And pretty much you're going to be able to buy Bitcoin anywhere. And before it had only been Kraken, Coinbase, Gemini, the exchanges, right? So I think that increases the surface area for Bitcoin's price to just soak up all that demand. That's really interesting. So, you know, I think from what you're saying is that the super cycle was brought on by, you know, the recession, which was brought on by COVID. And then we also have the adoption of Bitcoin from institutions, putting it on their balance sheets now. Is this kind of like the last super cycle or can you predict in the future some other super cycles that will kind of spread the demand of Bitcoin? Yeah, I think there might be future cycles, but I think there will only be one super cycle, whether that happens this time or in another four years. Because um, I think, what, like, what if this is the moment that the whole world, and they're starting to, wakes up to Bitcoin as gold 2.0? And Bitcoin has been around so like so long that almost everyone has heard the word Bitcoin before. But if if it's this moment, and we think about this from a marketing, I think about this from a marketing perspective. So that's my job at Kraken. I run growth marketing over there, and. In marketing, we try to think through and we try to attribute a signup event. So someone who signed up for Kraken uh, or any app like Uber, we try to think through what moments led them to this signup moment. Did they see my Facebook ad, LinkedIn ad, Twitter ad, and then they signed up? Like, was it the last ad that they saw or was it all the ads? I think for Bitcoin, it's about repeat exposure. And this terminology is called multi-touch attribution. For 10 years, Bitcoin has survived. People heard about it. A long time ago, and they're like, "Man, that Bitcoin thing is still around." <laughs> I wasn't into it back then, but it's still it's still kicking, and and now some people I trust recommend it. Maybe I should get into this. So I think that Bitcoin has had enough repeat exposure, and if there's a validation moment, if big institutions come in, if it's easy to buy, if it's easy to hodl it, that changes the dynamic a lot to where we could see the kind of floodgates open. And I don't think that's a repeat uh, a repeat event. I think that event happens once the whole world waking up to Bitcoin all at the same time. Amazing. So, um, you know, something that is gaining a lot of momentum right now is that anybody who's investing considers themselves like an impact or ethical investor. Um, I think people are waking up to the fact that your dollar is your vote um, and they want to put their money or they want to invest their money into projects that, you know, care about the environment or, you know, whatever they kind of care about the most. And we know that whenever Bitcoin is in, um, a bull run, there's always kind of like the argument against it. So I remember back in 2014, it was like money laundering and drugs, like don't touch Bitcoin because like all the bad people use it, even though cash has been around this whole time and, <laughs> you know, criminals have been using cash this entire time. But, um, you know, I feel like the new argument against Bitcoin at this moment is about its environmental impact. I'm sure that when people are reading, you know, these like huge statements like Bitcoin carbon emissions is comparable to the annual carbon footprint of the entire country of New Zealand. When people hear that, it can be quite scary. I know that you wrote a um, Twitter thread about this. Can you go into, you know, why that argument um, that Bitcoin is bad for the environment is either good or bad? Does it have any merit? Yeah, it's a common worry that Bitcoin is, is bad for the environment. And, you know, I think I respect folks' uh, reasons why they would be concerned about that because they're concerned about global warming and whatnot. Um, but when we dig into it, what typically the critics are, are highlighting is that they don't like Bitcoin. I have had this debate with a th over a thousand people and the core root of this is that, that they don't like Bitcoin. And here's why. If they were actually caring about the environment, they would first look at the existing financial system, which has bank branches, physical bank branches and bank servers bank employees who require a lot of energy to survive and they have their own homes and they have cars 
and there's air conditioning systems inside all of those. And then you have money printing operations <laughs> and then you have regulatory agencies and then you have the treasury and you have the central bank. And then you, you go on and on and on. You get the payment processors and Bitcoin replaces all of that. So if they were truly intellectually honest, they would first criticize the existing banking system and then they could criticize Bitcoin, but none of them ever do that. And so ultimately this conversation is about they don't like Bitcoin because they don't like Bitcoin. And no matter what type of energy Bitcoin uses, it'll never be good enough because they value Bitcoin at zero. That's ultimately the core root of this argument. You can easily find this out. Ask any of them, have you done this with the existing financial system? Or if they don't bring up the existing financial system, energy consumption in the article, it's dishonest. Yeah. Plain and simple. If you don't compare it to the existing system, which uses far more energy, which I calculated, then you're on a dishonest path of just choosing one arbitrary thing, Bitcoin, and going, I don't like that. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of a funny way to think about this. And I certainly wouldn't feel that I have a moral, <laughs> um, I'm not morally allowed to criticize your TV watching consumption. If Maxine wanna wa wants to watch Nova or a, a nature show and I want to watch the Kardashians, who cares? <laughs> it, would be, it would be absurd if someone came up to us in the street and then started to criticize me for watching the Kardashians. You'd be like, hey, man, or hey, you know, hey, person, we're like, well, this is messed up. Yeah. So in a similar function, why the hell do they have an opinion on Bitcoin? It's because they don't like Bitcoin. Um, yeah. You know, I always joke with these people. I'm like, let's start by auditing your energy consumption. Do you take plane flights? Do you have a car? How many rooms <laughs> do you have in your apartment? How much, how many square, how much square footage? Like, it's absurd. Of course, you can't go criticize my square footage and everything else. I'm free to consume what I want. And so, yeah, that's the ultimate argument behind Bitcoin. We could talk into what Bitcoin's energy consumption is of renewables. I don't think that matters because like no one the asks. Principle, you you, yeah, like the principle yeah. of the argument as it starts is not actually like a, a balanced one. It's one that's kind of a vendetta against Bitcoin rather than saying, okay, let's look at the entire energy consumption <laughs> of our existing world and then cross compare it. And I'm sure that if they did, they'd realize that Bitcoin is actually way more energetically efficient than what's out there currently. Precisely. It, it is. And when we calculate these numbers, Bitcoin is more efficient. Uh, also, Bitcoin's energy consumption is doing something very useful. It enables this new permissionless uh, gold 2.0 asset that anyone in the world can access, anyone in the world can use. This is an altruistic, very valuable thing for humanity. There's, it's, its use of electricity is perfectly justified. There's, yeah. there's I think that's kind of the, the, the end of that, that debate. Wonderful. Um, so, you know, the interesting thing about Bitcoin is that it's, it doesn't seem like an asset class that governments can really understand and regulate. Um, and in fact, there's like so much kind of institutional investment and I think retail investment now that people are a little bit confused about how can Bitcoin be unregulated yet thrive in such a regulated world? Can you go into kind of the core concepts of how Bitcoin can exist in kind of the, the existing structure that we have right now? Because it just seems, I mean, so out of place, but also work against our, it, it's like thriving because of the fact <laughs> that the world is so overregulated. Yeah. So we can kind of think about Bitcoin as being this awesome garden we can hang out in. Yeah. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> it's free. There's a bunch of awesome fruit in it, a bunch of beautiful flowers everywhere. But all these evil banks and the evil existing system, they're like, hey, we don't want you hanging out there. We want you to go to our garden where we tell you what to look at. We tell you when you can walk to this next section or not. And so we can think of 
Kraken and Coinbase as gateways to this new world. Uh, you know, Kraken, the company I work at as an exchange, we have to comply with a lot of regu- local regulations. So we have to get your financial information, your ID, and that's required. Uh, we have to do that because the state requires it. Now on Bitcoin, you don't have to do that when you transact on Bitcoin, you're free to do whatever you'd like. So we can kind of think of ourselves as these gateways to this new free world. And, uh, and so, yeah, we can still be compliant on the Kraken side, but at the same time, once you buy it from us, then you go free to do what you like with it. And I think that's the beauty of it, of this permissionless system is that, um, you know, you're truly free to do what you want. I mean, it's ultimate, and a lot of that scares a lot of people. I think, you know, at first you're like, well, what if someone bad uses it? Yeah. And uh, I think that's so funny because I'm like, well, bad people eat food and drink water. I'm going <laughs> to turn off water because bad people use it. I mean, bad people use everything. It's um, bad people use energy and cars and we can go down the list. But um, ultimately, like eventually, hopefully Bitcoin is wi- so widely adopted that that legacy system fades away. Mm-hmm. You know, we're over the long term, I think everyone in Bitcoin and crypto that's what we really care about is this legacy system fading away and we live in this permissionless system. And I think that's what will happen. It's just going to take a long time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, I, I know that, you know, we've only got a couple more minutes, but um, how do you think that Bitcoin has changed the discussion about wealth um, in the long run? Because I think, you know, when you're discussing about sound money, it really made me think about, you know, people who are holding maybe fiat balances or like, you know, essentially government money. And that that's not like a true sense of wealth. Whereas like Bitcoin does seem to be a true sense of wealth because of like the cap and all of everything that's built into it. So do you think that Bitcoin has changed the discussion about wealth? And if, if it has, like how so? Yeah. So Bitcoin and gold are bearer assets. Uh, same with dollars or euros or yen. However, there's a central controller over those, that, that paper money, and they could print as much as they'd like, which would make the ones that you hold in your hand worth a lot less. Bitcoin and gold are bearer assets, which mean when you hold it, you've got ownership of it. That's incredibly powerful because if we look at other assets and you might go, oh, well, I have my brokerage account. I own equities and I own my, my home. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> your, your brokerage is owned by your brokerage and you have a claim over it. You don't take physical. You don't take physical custody of the certificate, stock certificates. Um, in fact, they're required to be held by like a like a. I forget exactly how the infrastructure works, but essentially by your brokerage. Um, and then with your house, you you own the title to your house, but the government controls that. I mean, you you can't take the title and walk away and be like, you can't take this away from me. They'll just transfer the title to someone else. Yeah. You don't truly have ownership over it. You have a claim over it that you hope is enforced by a certain body or or regulatory entity. And that's where with Bitcoin and gold, you required no third-party body to like give you ownership over that asset. That asset is yours no matter what. Now, certainly certainly you could have had stolen it from someone and they're going to want it back and they're going to pursue legal means to do that. But when you hold it, you still have it. So it's kind of like, um, was it a possession is two-fifths of the law or three-fifths of the law or something like that as the saying goes? I mean, holding, holding this bearer asset gives you full autonomy over your wealth. And I think that's so powerful and just really, really cool. Um, it, it's, a, it's a fundamentally groundbreaking way to store value, and that will change the dynamics of wealth preservation. We are seeing a rise in socialism across the world. And the United States is embracing it. The UK has long embraced it. And we're going to see them start to go after 
the wealthy who aren't paying their fair share. I already pay 40% of my money in taxes in California. I don't know what a fair share is. All of my yeah, money? I can't, I'm, I can't say that I'm jealous of like the US taxation system. Like when I, cause like coming from Hong Kong, we have no capital gains tax. So oh, when man. I was like learning more, I was like, whoa, that's, that's a lot, like 40%. It's almost yeah. half. <laughs> Yeah. And then, and then they complain that the rich aren't paying their fair share. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You want more than half? They put in the work to make it like, and they're like, oh yeah, fair share is like, what's a fair share? They just keep wanting more. Well, I think what's like really interesting is that, you know, people are paying so much taxes, but it seems as though the government has a spending problem. It's not that people aren't paying enough taxes. Yeah. There was a great tweet that I tweeted out. It was a quote from someone else where he compiled the aggregate wealth of all the billionaires in the United States. The United States is the wealthiest nation in the world, both on an individual basis and also a government level. And if you took all of the wealth of all the billionaires, sold it all, let's assume you could sell it, which you can't because there's not going to be a buyer for all of the shares of a certain company, right? Like the stock market price, this price would tank. Um, Even if you did that, it would only run, it would only run the government for eight months. And this is before COVID. And that's all their wealth. That's not their income. That's all of their wealth. So we don't have a taxation problem. We have a spending problem. Like we clearly have a spending problem. And I think this is going to come to a very violent uh, end with Bitcoin because Bitcoin's like, fuck you. I don't give a shit. Like I've got my Bitcoin and good fucking luck extracting 12 words out of someone's head. And people should feel that way because they don't, I didn't sign into a contract for this. I was born into it and I was born in and they're like, cool, well, you're born into slavery now. I'd like, I'd like 40% of your wealth. And if I don't yeah. comply, I'm put in prison. Yeah. So I'm, yeah, it's like a very, it, it's when you, if you're like an aliens and an alien species came to earth and saw this mechanism, they'd be like, what the hell is this? This is crazy. But when you're born into it, you're like, oh, this is normal. And it's good for me. It's good for people. Taxes are great. And it's like, Most people don't want to question the nature of their reality. Yeah. I think like at the end of the day, you know, true wealth is freedom. And I think that Bitcoin is definitely like a part of that narrative about like what freedom means now in a modern day. But Dan, thank you so much for coming on here. You explained everything so well. Um, How do people get in touch with you? Yeah. So if you uh, like my thoughts here and you want to get my quick hits, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Held. Um, if you want my longer form thoughts, so on a weekly basis, I put out a longer form newsletter. This is my paid newsletter. So if you like my thoughts, you want to support me, or you want to learn more in the deep rabbit hole of Bitcoin, it's called the Held Report. It comes out every Thursday. And uh, yeah, those are the two spots to find me. Awesome. And where is the best place to buy Bitcoin? Kraken, of course. Kraken <laughs> is the best exchange you could buy Bitcoin at. We have great fee structure. Um, we're widely available across the world. Definitely recommend going to Kraken. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Maxine.